global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. Developing and developed nations wax and wane in their importance in the global stage. While consumption and interconnectedness both increase, laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. How do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens International Business Attorneys. I'm Fred Rockefort. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every week, we take a targeted look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of international experts. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Please connect with us via email and social media to comment and suggest future topics and guests. In this week's episode, we discuss foreign direct investment in Spain. If you are looking for further information on this topic, I encourage you to check out our upcoming free hour-long webinar titled Investing and Doing Business in Spain, A Legal Perspective. This webinar will be taking place on Thursday, November 19th, starting at 10 a.m. Pacific time. We will be including a webinar registration link together with this episode. Register today for this free webinar and get all your questions answered about this interesting topic. Sonia Gumpert is the managing partner of Monedeo Meyer Abogados, a leading Spanish law firm with which Harris Bricken has a close working relationship. Among other distinctions, Sonia has served as chairwoman of the Madrid Bar Association and as first vice president of Spain's General Council for Legal Practice, which represents Spain's 83 bar associations. She was recently appointed an expert arbitrator of the Latin American Arbitration Center. A graduate of the Autonomous University of Madrid, Sonia also holds a master's from Comillas Pontifical University. Sonia, welcome to the show. Bienvenida. Thank you very much, Fred. A pleasure to be here. Sonia, we'd love for you to start out by telling us a little about your professional career. You, you've done a lot of amazing things, and we'd love to have you explain to us what you think uh, is, is significant. Okay, so um, to, to cut it short, uh, let me say after I, I went or I received a uh, school education in Madrid, in my hometown, at an international school. And then I studied law and I got, as you said, a master's degree in uh, European law, after which I immediately joined the, the law of Monedeo, Mayer. This, that was in June 1993. And uh, I joined the firm uh, as its first associate lawyer because I really fell in love with the project of international vocation that the founding partners presented to me in the interview. I have to say, this international orientation corresponded completely to my school and to my university education and therefore also to my vision and to my conception of the world and of the human relations. Um, as I said, the firm was then a very young firm as it was founded four years before I joined it uh, with the objective and the vocation of legally advising foreign companies and investors. Um, the, the idea was uh, to provide legal advice in a, in a comprehensive way to, to the clients or for the clients that is 
together with a quality and rigorous legal assistance. The idea was to accompany them in their Spanish adventure, let me uh, say so, uh, with the cultural and the social support that would facilitate synergies to enable and promote the development of business and commercial trade with Spain over or beyond, to say so, cultural and language barriers. In the early years of our firm, in which I was lucky to participate, our goal was to become known as a reference law firm in Spain business law and for international companies and investors as well. It wasn't really an easy challenge since uh, there were already some large and mid-sized Spanish law firms active in business law and with international focus. Competing with them was really not an easy task, but our enthusiasm and our desire were really enormous and each mandate and client achieved were really a joy and an incentive uh, that strengthened and encouraged us to move forward. This, these first years were of a set of enormous effort and personal sacrifice for really all members of the firm, but also of great joy and enthusiasm. We forged almost unconsciously a very, very solid bond between both professional and personal between us, uh, which was, as you know, necessary to overcome the difficult inherent in a highly committed and socially relevant profession such as the legal profession is. Each one of us uh, contributed in an exceptional way to create our own and shared work philosophy, a shared vision of how to understand the practice of law, its principle and limits and the service to the, to the clients. During my first years of professional practice, I was uh, lucky to study and advise in various, um, in different areas of law, in civil and commercial, in labor, in tax law, in real estate, in trademarks, in inheritance litigation law, always from an international perspective. Uh, and I think this contributed very much to my overall professional training. Later, when the structure of the firm um, allowed, allowed it, we organized ourselves around each uh, one's personal specialization. And I was able to devote myself to the branch of law that I like best, which is which was and still is civil and commercial dispute resolution, both in court and in arbitration. This, I would say, summarizes very good my, my, professional, uh, my professional career. Thank you, Sonia. Um, as we mentioned in the, in the introduction, you were the first woman to serve as the, the dean, the, the, the chairwoman, we, we can be translated either, either way, of the largest bar association in Spain, the, the Madrid Bar Association, the Colegio de Abogados de Madrid for, for our Spanish speakers in the audience. And you're also the, the, the managing partner of uh, Monedeo Mayor Abogados, which is uh, a respected law firm in, in Spain. So you have a unique perspective from which to assess the current situation of women in the legal sector in Spain. Could you tell us about this? Sure. Well, the situation of women, of Spanish women in the legal profession and in general in the legal uh, world in Spain has certainly improved slowly but surely, year after year, but really has still a long way to go. Uh, female leadership in Spanish advocacy is scarce and re really not very visible. 
um, I have to give you some some figures uh, about female partners of Spanish law firm firm firms uh, are barely reach sixteen uh, percent of the of the um, of them, and when it comes to managing partners, the figure uh, gets even lower. Uh, what is what is unacceptable about this situation is not only this figure, but that uh, that the figures do not correspond to the percentage of women in the Spanish legal profession, which is around fifty percent. Obviously, this this does not respond to the lack of capacity of women, uh, but to the fact that the structures, the institutions, the offices. All the Spanish professional environment are thought and made by, for, and tailored to men, not to women. These uh, figures in 2020 prove that women find obstacles in the development of their careers in Spanish law firms. Uh, and, and they face uh, uh, obstacles which men do not face. In my opinion, there, there is still no meritocratic system in Spain that allows the proper leverage of female talent. And this untapped potential female talent is a great loss, not only for women ourselves, but for law firms and for the clients and thus for society. In my opinion, the main obstacle is uh, in the individual and collective culture. Gender equality is still not integrated in Spanish education and traditions, which are passed on from generation to generation, sometimes through unconscious biases. As soon as this um, cultural change takes place in Spanish society, and, and it has to take place sooner or later, gender equality will no longer be an issue to worry about and to deal with, uh, as it will be naturally imposed to reflect in a balanced way the composition of the legal profession and thus of the society itself. At the level of the legal institutions, uh, let me tell you, when I was elected Dean of the Madrid Bar Association in 2012, there were no more than six female deans in Spain, including me. We currently have, uh, first of all, a female president of the, of the Spanish uh, uh, lawyers, of the Spanish advocates, and 16 female deans. So that same as in the legal profession, the progress in our institutions is uh, still too slow and women are still underrepresented at this institutional level uh, as well. As the first woman dean of Madrid, my exposure and vulnerability were uh, great. But I have to say that it was an honor and a challenge to assume this leadership position, not only because it could have been inspiring for all to see that it is possible to be a woman in a professional with decision-making capacity, but mainly because only from positions of leadership and power, things can be really changed. During my, terms, my term of office, I worked hard to give female lawyers of Madrid the visibility they undoubtedly deserved and uh, move forward in equality in the Madrid legal profession. I think and I want uh, my desire is or my wish is to, to, to believe that I managed to do this, uh, Fred. Sonia, that means that as a, a woman lawyer, you're advising uh, largely male clients and probably in your dispute resolution work, you're also, uh, you know, you may be the lone woman in the room. So how have you, uh, has that been difficult for you or did, have you now been comfortable in your shoes for so long 
that uh, that the, your clients and others who who you work with uh, understand and respect you for uh, for the experience and the and uh, you know the leadership that you bring to the room. Okay, I have to say that my personal experience has been very positive, and I have had no big obstacles um, in my law firm, which I am very proud of. But the thing is that in Spain, when you look at the career of the women lawyers, they do great until they start uh, having uh, children. And then uh, suddenly everything changes. Uh, and it changes because the careers are built up in the law firms based on cliches and on life and the circumstances of men, not of women. And this is unfair. On the other hand, with clients, I have to say that it comes often, very often, that I'm sitting in a big uh, table only with with men. And um, there are some uh, traditions uh, or some uh, way some things that men do that I do would like to change or would not like to do and I just what I do what I do is simply not not do what I don't want to do uh, I keep it professional I keep it on a professional level and uh, try to try to still uh, keep my balance between my professional and my personal life it's very interesting the way you describe that because uh, Fred and I just interviewed uh, another guest uh, who will air probably two weeks before your episode, and she's from India, came to the U.S., and her um, her company is largely focused on helping women get back to work after a gap in, in having children or in uh, becoming a caretaker for uh, maybe an older relative. And so that has been her primary focus because she experienced that same um, that same prejudice in, in taking, uh, I think she only had an 18 month gap when she had her daughter and very, very well qualified, uh, individual. And, and she found a lot of doors closed just from that, uh, from that short gap. Ah, absolutely. The, 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 the sad thing about this, uh, Jonathan, is that this, what happens in Spain happens, uh, worldwide. I mean, this is not, is, is not a Spanish problem or an American problem. It's a worldwide problem. And I think, um, and at, at the end of the day, we have all, all over the world, the problem is the same. The problem is, uh, first biological because we get the children, uh, and then also very, very much cultural, very much bound to how we feel that we have to raise our children only in the lo loving hands of the mother because um, our culture, our religion, whatever, whatever social skills is uh, traditional says that it has to be like this and not the other way around. But I think, and I, I think the big, big revolution comes because the, the, the good news is not that women are changing uh, her minds, but that men are changing their minds. I mean, younger professionals do want to take care of their babies as much as uh, young women do. And they are ready to be, we say in Spain, co co to, to share 50-50 to share this responsibility. And this uh, has an impact on the professional uh, uh, consequences of that. And this is a very good news. That is very good news. So let's turn now to talk about the differences between the legal systems of the U.S. and continental Europe. Um, which of the two do you consider more business-oriented? 
Well, okay, United States has a common law system, whereas continental Europe has uh, what is called a civil law tradition, okay? So the civil law tradition is based on compendiums of rules approved by the sovereign called codes, yeah? and this constitutes a fundamental difference. Renowned professors of law may write highly influential legal commentaries, but only the codified law is pending for courts. The two most important collections of law in Europe were the Justinian Code, a compilation of Roman laws ordered by late uh, Roman Byzantine Emperor, and the Napoleonic Code. Yeah? While France under Napoleon occupied countries like Germany, Italy and Spain only for a short period, the legal system which the French had created for the new republic addressed what were back then modern and progressive concerns. Thus, all those countries have legal codes influenced by the Napoleonic Code, and so, so do many countries around the world which adopted European-style codes to modernize and industrialize, Japan, for example. However, if this is the, this is the academic part of the story. However, if you see it from the practitioner's eyes, the differences in both legal systems are not essential, but lay in small, nevertheless important details. As I have learned from speaking to practitioners in both countries, because I myself did never practice in the United States, it seems that the way of arguing and developing an idea might differ, but the results and the solutions come out to be very similar. L let me go a little bit into detail. For example, for the investor looking into Spain, a typical M&A transaction might seem not that different in Europe from what he may be used to in the US. However, there are some differences that are important to bear, to bear in mind. For instance, an investor who decides to enter the Spanish market through distribution channels before taking the step of an FDI should not miss that commercial uh, agency uh, uh, law in Europe uh, that is very different from US law. In Europe or Spain, the requirements for distribution agreements can be fairly strict and onerous. Hence, the U.S. company needs to make sure that signed agreement meets all requirements to avoid future remuneration claims that prevent a classification as labor agreement or as labor relationship and clearly define the rebus extantibus clause, which proves to be very important in times like we are regrettably now of COVID. In addition, when selling products into Spain, especially if doing so through a distributor, in my view, it is imperative to register your brand name as a trademark in Spain, since the failure to do so could eventually block the U.S. company from using your name in Spain. Uh, Spain's trademark law is based on first to register and not first to use. Another important fact, for example, in my opinion, is that investors who decide to form a subsidiary in Spain will soon have to face the incredible extent of bureaucracy and formalism in the Spanish administration, which is really, really huge. I advise U.S. investors to expect that getting any sort of registration in Spain or in the when the EU in, the, in Europe will take at least twice as long as it and usually costs twice as much as in the United States. 
You will not be able to form a company online and overnight, but need countless notarized and apostille stamped documents, extracts, powers of attorney, agreements, etc., etc. And on the top of this, all in original, legalized and authenticated versions. Getting your business form and its tax IDs might take up to four weeks. Double than if you need to hire uh, double of that if you need to hire employees. Uh, good contracts as, are as important as they are in the use in the United States. Of course, you need to uh, you need uh, to ensure clarity, prevention of conflicts, and enforcement. However, in Spain, we are far from using digitally signed contracts still, but would uh, still recommend originally signed versions as they are uh, still considering having more evidentiary proof uh, if you have to go to court. Another fact I would like to point out is uh, that banking became complicated since the European anti-money laundering regulations were implemented in Spanish law in, uh, two, in 2010. Spain has extremely strict anti-money laundering rules, really uh, incredible. While one of the essential historical principles of Spanish corporate law is the concept of anonymity, hence the name Sociedad Anónima, uh, which means the identity of the owners behind the Spanish stock corporation or capital company in principle does not need to be revealed to the public. In the course of combating money laundering, Spanish legislators and the bureaucrats are increasingly undermining this principle. This is uh, unknown to most of our U.S. clients when they first go into Europe, but can really create big issues as they need to reveal their ultimate beneficial owners, not only to all involved advisors, such as notaries and lawyers, but also to the bank. A more commonly known different lays in employment law. Other than with U.S. at-will employment law, employees in Spain are heavily protected and enjoy indemnification rights for unlawful dismissal, which any U.S. investor needs to be aware of. Employment law may also become important in M&A when the target company will transfer employees, which can be all sort of liabilities for the uh, foreign investor. And last but not least, the investor further needs to keep an eye on privacy and data protection, of course. Most, most investors have probably by now heard about the GDPR and know how to avoid data breach notification and penalties. Considering that, I would characterize the legal, Spanish, the legal, the legal system of the U.S. as in general more business-oriented. It's... It's like this. <laughs> However, this, that, uh, this does not mean that Spain uh, does not offer many attractive business opportunities for U.S. investors, of course. Thank you, Sonia. It, it's actually rather remarkable that even uh, at this stage when we've had so much interaction between uh, our system here in the U.S. and, and systems in Europe, there, there are still uh, fundamental um, misconceptions, perhaps, and, 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 a, and a lack of knowledge. Uh, certainly here in the U.S., uh, many, many lawyers are, are not that familiar with the differences between our, our system and, and the European systems. You know, that people can, people know there's, a, most lawyers know there's a difference of some sort, but, but really very useful to, to have this detailed explanation. Thank you. 
you brought up the the, the issue of, of COVID, uh, and I wanted to I wanted to follow up on that. Um, we know, of course, that uh, Spain has been strongly impacted by by the pandemic. Uh, every country in the world has, but I think Spain, especially because it, uh, of what happened in Spain dur- during the early days of the pandemic, I think I think people uh, associated more with, with those early days when we were coming to terms with, with this virus. Um, turning specifically to the law and, and the, the Spanish legal sector, how has COVID-19 impacted uh, the, the work of, of lawyers in, in Spain? How have uh, working conditions uh, changed, uh, not just for lawyers, but perhaps for for others as well? You know, we, we have this ongoing conversation now here in the United States about how the world is going to look after COVID. Maybe we will preserve some of the changes. Maybe we will continue uh, to to look for opportunities to, to work remotely and uh, start moving away from in-person conferences and, and even in-person court appearances, et cetera. So uh, how is that conversation looking in Spain? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. The COVID pandemic has been a real tsunami and had had unprecedented impact on the Spanish legal profession and, as you said, as it has had in almost all economic and social sectors. In the legal profession, the COVID has um, demanded from the law firms an immediate and unremitting review of our work processes, our internal relations and those with third parties. Um, That is... uh, almost everything. Third parties, I mean clients and the common stakeholders like judicial bodies, public administration, other legal professionals such as notaries, registers, etc. So almost everything, processes, relationship, <laughs> almost everything. For the, legal, for the Spanish legal profession sector, uh, which I have to say is a very traditional sector, Uh, that has been very reticent about technological transformation, the undisputed and undeferable adaptation of these new processes, necessarily linked and supported in technology and computer science, has been a qualitative leap, really. So it has, of course, meant a huge challenge, a deep change in the work methodology with the appearance of new processes and new ways of learning, working and delivering. Really, it has been a revolution. In the first place, of course, you mentioned it before, Fred, remote work or home office, as we call it, has required an immediate investment on equipment and software, of course, as well as a quick technological solution to preserve confidentiality and professional secrecy, of course, which are at the core of the legal profession. And because of that, it has demanded new internal communication policies, principles and guidelines. We had to review everything. But despite all these difficulties and due to the COVID, remote work has managed to overcome a still strongly presence-based working tradition, which was not so good for everybody, and which was until now almost sacred in the sector, proving uh, that is useful for certain tasks. The home office uh, is is useful for certain tasks and functions. Um, And this happens in this COVID experience all in record time, that we realized that this presence-based working tradition uh, was not the best and it could be mixed with the home office in a very efficient way. 
so as a result of that, we found, found out that conciliation should not longer be the only purpose of home office, which is not bad. And uh, talking about women, women should therefore not be anymore the main applicants for this work uh, method. Productivity should be now the main value when it comes to home office for Spanish law firms, which is very important. We shall now reformulate the concept and the content of working time and rethink or think over how to not lose certain periods of our daily time, such as daily commuting, especially significant in big cities like Madrid is or Barcelona is, and lunchtime, which has been traditionally long in Spain, and take advantage of them, whether to work or whether for professional life or for personal life. The challenge for law firm is now to find the ideal formula that combines both work methodologies, home office and presence-based work, providing uh, the environment and the tools for efficiency and, of course, in first place for security in every sense. But there is no doubt that Spanish law firms have been and are capable of providing advice in the digital environment as well as in person. Individual and collective acceptance of remote work has been extraordinarily accelerated by the, uh, by the pandemic. Um, our immediate challenge is now to implement it, combined with presence-based uh, work in the right balance, which might be different for each law firm or, or, or even for, for every legal area. Once this ideal mixed working system has been created and duly implemented, there will be, in my opinion, in my opinion, a second big revolution uh, of even a greater economic and social impact, which is the conception, um, the conception, the configuration, and the use of the working spaces by and and of Spanish uh, law firms, the the dimensions, the distribution, and even the location of the spaces of the Spanish law firms will be subject to a complete review. I think this is the, the, the first and most important effect of this, of this uh, home office, uh, mixed home office and present-based work system. The traditional presence-based working model that gives way to the mixed model will undoubtedly mean that common or shared spa uh, spaces will gain ground compared to the still, still valid model of individual and personalized spaces. I mean, the impact of this change of working spaces on the firm's uh, income statement and therefore on the prices of the legal services will be comparably huge to, the, to that caused by the technological in innovation. I am sure of that. Likewise, likewise, in the relationship with third parties, Switching to online communication has meant an enormous effort of change for Spanish law firms, which were, as I said before, not so crazy about technology, to be honest. Not only the communication with our client has changed, but also the acts of our litigation practice, such as online judicial hearings, which were unthinkable six months ago. Uh, and this um, uh, has, has changed our way of working undoubtedly. The same has uh, undoubtedly been true for the 
for the pandemic with regard to the Hispanic public administration, especially uh, for the justice system, despite uh, the price to be paid in terms of procedural delay, which has uh, further aggravated the endemic slowness of the Spanish courts. COVID has been, therefore, both for the Spanish law firm and for the Spanish legal authorities, a major boost on a path of technolo technological innovation, which was already marked out and uh, which has to be traveled the sooner or the later. It's very interesting hearing uh, the changes to the legal profession. And uh, I, I love your, your description of, of Spanish law firms not, uh, not really adapting well or not being willing to uh, adapt to the technology very well. It's, that's, that's great insight. So we're very curious on uh, Spain is a tourism destination and COVID-19 impact in Spain has to have been massive. Um, how is the country facing it? What uh, is there... Uh, is there light at the end of the tunnel or are, are people getting hopeful yet or is, it, or is it still just very depressing to see what COVID is doing to the tourism sector? It's depressing. It's really depressing. And we are not, I think we are not seeing even the light at the end of the tunnel yet. Um, according to the Spanish Confederation of Business Organizations, uh, tourism, tourism contributes uh, 12% to Spain's to Spain's GDP and is among the sectors, as you said, most affected by the social and economic crisis of the COVID. The tourist situation in Spain is really serious. The airplanes are grounded, the hotels are closed, and there are travel restrictions to Spain or quarantine periods in almost every country in the world, including the U.S., not only uh, uh, with other countries, but inside Spain. We have, as you have uh, probably recently uh, heard or read, uh, also inside Spain. You never know if you will be able to travel tomorrow to Barcelona or to Marbella or to Malaga because uh, things are changing every day. So, uh, nevertheless, and uh, in, in when it comes to international level, recent good news are that Germany will lift, uh, will lift, uh, has lifted uh, already in September, at the end of September, its recommendation not to travel to risk areas, which included Spain, and that so-called tourist corridors for the Canary and for the Balearic Islands, where the most of the uh, of the European. Um, tourism is concentrated are being uh, as said these tourist corridors are being negotiated with uh, UK this development will certainly lead to a reduction of the restriction policies uh, of both countries Germany and the UK which are the main sources of the Spanish tourism the figures really speak for themselves. Spanish airports recorded in the previous years 6 69.6 percent fewer passengers than in previous years. Palma de Mallorca, uh, with a fall of 45.9%, is the Spanish airport with the highest number of movements in August. I'm talking about the most uh, important month, uh, which is August in terms of uh, tourists. And then after Palma de Mallorca, uh, Madrid is the, the airport which is more important and that had a fall of 59.1% in August uh, of this year. And Barcelona had a fall of uh, 57%. Uh, talking about movement of good of goods, not of persons, but of good, it has been reduced by 
almost uh, 28.6% compared to the previous year. And the total number of commercial passengers on domestic flights recorded in August was 41.6% lower than August 2019. And the number of commercial passengers on international flights was, listen, 80.7% lower, which is scary. In addition to the use of masks, which is mandatory in Spain for all public spaces and public transport for people over six years, there are some other specific measures for tourism businesses, such as capacity and timetable limitation, restrictions of valet or ironing service, mandatory use of single-dose products and of single-use materials, compulsory individualization of rations, and so on, that make really the tourist, the touristic business extremely difficult and moreover expensive. Maybe you have heard that recently, today or yesterday, um, Barcelona uh, ordered uh, closing uh, or shutdown of every bar, every cafeteria, every restaurant, and the uh, the sector is really on fire and uh, and are fearing the worst of the outcome for this. So the Spanish uh, Confederation of Business Organization, which is the na national level, the biggest one, has asked for a reduction of VAT to 7% during 2020 and 2021 for accommodation services. That means restaurants, passenger transport, travel agencies and leisure, leisure businesses like discos, restaurants, bars and cinemas. And are asking, uh, entrepreneurs are asking for specific measure that really uh, relieve them a little bit of the uh, difficult circumstances they are they are still um, suffering. Businesses linked to the tourism sector, like travel agencies, hotels, catering, bars, and so on, were forced to lower to lower prices this summer to try to attract customers and to survive the crisis. Uh, so that, in addition to suffering a collapse of international customers and unprecedented fall in demand, the sector was forced to offer really crash prices to try to attract the domestic tourists and to uh, revive a little bit consumption. According to the cons Consumer Price Index, uh, which is published by the National Institute of Statistics, prices in the sector have fallen by uh, 0.3% in July, compared to the same month last year, and by 0.5% uh, in August. This means that prices have been this summer 0.4 lower on average than in 2019. So the sector is still in crisis and still uh, making us suffer every day. That's very interesting, Sonia. And I think it's important for our listeners in the U.S. at least to understand that for Spain, tourists from places like Germany, places like the U.K., are what tourists from New York or uh, the Midwest are to to a state like like Florida. You know the, the size of Europe um, is is comparable to, to the size of the U.S. So um, he, you know here in the U.S. if we have a closed borders, first of all, tourism perhaps as a as a contributor to to national GDP is uh, has a less importance than than it does in Spain, but 
in addition to that, even to the extent that it is important to places like like Florida, the lack of international visitors um, has much less of an impact that, than it does in in Spain. Um, I also wanted to comment on those those numbers. You know, the, the numbers that you shared with us regarding the the drop in passengers. I I, I follow aviation news closely and. Sometimes when I hear some of these statistics, um, I have to double check because I think to myself, there, there must be a mistake here. The decrease cannot be so big. I think they made a, a mistake, you know, where they put the the, yeah, the decimal point. But but no, it, it's it's uh, for for many airlines, it's uh, it's a really critical situation. And of course, for the for the tourism industry more more broadly, turning in a more positive direction. The firm that that you lead, um, Monedeo Meyer Abogados, is, is specialized in, in advising foreign companies doing business in Spain, as you as you mentioned earlier in the podcast. And in, and as a matter of fact, um, I've had the pleasure of traveling to Spain to to participate in, in joint events between Harris Birkin and and Monedeo Meyer. I have greatly enjoyed that. In fact, we very recently we we have been working on on some promotion events geared at U.S. companies that want to invest in Spain. So let's take advantage of this opportunity to to talk about that a, a little bit for for international companies, but especially for American companies that might be looking to to invest in Spain. What are some of the things that they have to consider, especially in the aftermath of the or in the midst of the of the COVID situation, and perhaps. Um, for for people that might not be as familiar with Spain, what are some of the opportunities that the country offers to foreign companies who might enter that market? Mm-hmm. Yeah, indeed, we provide about eighty percent of our legal advice to foreign clients, mostly foreign companies or investors that carry out business activities or have business interests in Spain. Our law firm is internationally oriented with a team of lawyers of different origins and and equipped with legal education obtained uh, within and beyond Spanish national uh, borders. Uh, As I told you before, since the creation of the law firm, we had had a significant number of foreign lawyers in our partnership structure. We can truly say that we have set standards in cross-border legal services and have become one of the few truly international Spanish law firms in Spain. Our core business has always been the German-speaking market and since joining our alliance with Harris Bricken, we have had the opportunity to assist many U.S. investors in Spain. Speaking about investment in Spain, Fred, it must be said that the spread of COVID has uh, touched uh, every facet on Spanish society. And the scale of the humanitarian crisis has been matched by widespread economic disruption. Spanish companies that had been riding years of reasonable economic expansion had to throw out existing strategies and, and, and adapt. It is hard to predict recovery terms, but a recent McKinsey report from September 2020 assumes Spain's economy will recover by the end of 2023. So, um, the impact of COVID is um, is huge, but it on revenues will vary by sectors, with slower recovery times likely for sectors suffering stronger shocks as tourist 
tourist, uh, the touristic business uh, might be. Um, and there are sectors that could experience a drop of more than 20% of revenues in real terms as they rely on activities that have been and partially still are highly restricted or fueled by discretionary consumer spending. This include accommodation and food services, um, entertainment, transport, auto, real estate, and wholesale and retail, excluding uh, groceries. This segment represents 27% of gross value added and employment. The second segment represents uh, 34% of GVA and 36% of the labor market. Sectors in it could experience a 10 to 20% drop in, the, in revenue in 2020. These uh, sectors are constructions, logistics, agriculture, forestry and fisheries, professional activities, financial institutions, energy and utilities, and other industries. Uh, last, the sectors that may be less affected by COVID represent uh, 26% of GVA and 20, uh, 31% of the labor market. These sectors with revenues potentially dropping only, let me say only 10% or less, are telecommunications, pharma and medical products, public services, the consumer goods industry and retail groceries. This is how how we how we see it from our experience and from our uh, uh, forecast. Some changes, uh, as you said before, or, or really here to stay, and may affect certain sectors more than others. For instance, the impact of the contact-free economy and the accelerated digitization has been significant in Spain, and likely will continue to be. The crisis has placed more pressure on just-in-time, on zero-stock approaches that many companies employ as well as increased the importance of the end-to-end -end supply chain visibility. The sectors that could suffer a, a lower short-term demand hit, like I said before, telecommunications, pharmaceuticals and medical products, retail groceries and energy and utilities, could maybe start focusing now on what their businesses will look like in the future. Uh, the companies will, uh, of course, need to determine whether to pursue, pursue traditional business models or explore new ones, considering how their customers' needs and preference have changed or might have changed, which in turn could lead to a way for mergers and acquisition and partnership and alliance, of course. This is the positive way to see it. Spain's economic recovery will uh, will be neither instant nor easy. This that's for sure. The pandemic's impact has been really seismic, but the experience could also be an opportunity to create a value in this uh, so-called new normality. The investors do need to diligently choose which steps uh, steps needs to be taken. In the wake of coronavirus pandemic, the Spanish legislature has passed new stricter regulations for foreign investment in Spain, which require that certain investment obtain, other than before, prior authorith authorization. Until recently, the legal framework for foreign direct investment in Spain was based on a liberal regime, 
which opened the economy to foreign direct investments in Spain, whilst reserving the right for the Spanish government to suspend this liberalization for certain investments. This liberal legal framework allowed uh, in the past foreign investment subject only to the obligation of subsequent or, or, or posterior reporting for stati statistical purposes and, if applicable, specific regulation of certain very limited industries. According to the recitals of the new law, the economic crisis triggered by the health crisis poses a threat to, a threat to Spanish companies which find themselves exposed to takeover attempts by foreign investors. And even though not all foreign direct investments in Spain require prior authorization, when one studies this new regulation, it becomes clear that the definition of the included sectors is widely vague and open. So in our experience, the authorities will probably opt for a broad interpretation of the regulation, but foreign investors in Spain are advised, in case of any dubs, to preventively obtain the respective authorization. This uh, whole development clearly comes aligned with certain protectionist tendencies around the globe, so we do expect stricter regulation for foreign investments. However, at the same time, Spain remains at the forefront of foreign investment and remains extremely interesting for foreign investors. We still believe that climate for investments in Spain is good. Despite the, this described emergency regulation in the past several months, the legislature's intentions are generally foreseeable. Spain has overcome the huge economic downfall of the years 2008 to 2014, which was, as you very well know, also huge. And has now recovered, which means the economic the, the economy is growing and stable. Several tax incentives have been implemented in foreign securities holding companies in Spanish ETV was developed as a special tax regime applicable to holding companies in Spain. There are certainly tax incentives for Spanish companies investing into South America. Spain has tax treaties in place with 94 countries to avoid double taxation. Labor costs remain much more competitive than in other main European economies, while counting with a highly skilled labor force. The applicable labor law is comparatively attractive for entrepreneurs, uh, and Spain has implemented an excellent infrastructure in transport over the last years. The Spanish legislator approved a fast-track visa framework for investment in qualified professionals. And Spain is part of an EU framework, an European framework, which guarantees competitiveness and services in product markets liberalization. 14% 14, 14 of the GDP fiscal package, as recently announced in the fiscal measures of the G20 economies, is in place to minimize long-term impact of the pandemic. The governments around the world have responded to the pandemic by launching sizable stimulus packages to protect lives and livelihoods. And for now, the magnitude of the Spanish government's response has been in line with that of other advanced economies until now. 
The political situation has also stabilized since after several re-elections in recent years, Spain now finally has a government um, and it remains to be seen how the new coalition government will support business owners. Uh, but we are very, very uh, optimistic on that. Sonia, it has been great having you on the podcast. Thank you for bringing your expertise and sharing your opinions on what's going on in Spain and, and greater Europe. Uh, we always love to end the podcast with recommendations from our guests on uh, what you've been reading or watching or listening to lately that might be interesting to our listeners. Okay, thank you, Jonathan. It's, it was also really a pleasure for me to be here with you, with Fred and with you. And um, I will encourage very much your, your listeners uh, to explore Spain in every sense, uh, for investing, uh, for touristic purposes. And um, Spain is a really safe country, uh, a really... Uh, nice country from the from the from the human beings um, uh, perspective and we are always happy to have american americans here and we are uh, we as lawyers will be glad to help in any sense thank you so much fred what do you have to recommend for us today well first of all i'm going to have to strongly endorse um sonia's recommendation i i i think spain is a is, is a wonderful destination and one of the things that, that that i love about it is is just how diverse it is especially in comparison to to the size it's you know spain is um comparable to to a large u.s state um i, I don't have a specific comparison at hand but th there is just so much with within the borders of spain in terms of, of different landscapes culturally the, there are huge differences you know as, as you go from one region to another there's different languages different uh, just different cultural traditions it's, it's just a wonderful wonderful place in terms of, of my own recommendations uh, I've, I have two this week. The first one, um, just a, a practical recommendation. I've, I've started using YouTube Premium, and I was a little hesitant at first, right? Because my thinking was, well, I can I can get all that I need, but I was looking for for a music app to use when I'm exercising, and I decided to give YouTube Premium a try to see if if that would work and and it does you know basically what it does it, it takes away the the annoying ads at the beginning of the video it allows you to basically have a a proper playlist of whatever content you want and and it's basically it's allowed me to get over one of the things that that bothered me about youtube which was that if you know if i if i put the phone um i don't know what the proper term is right but sometimes uh, you know there are apps that you can continue to to run while give your your screen a bit of a rest with with youtube premium you can do this so you know i, I just just wanted to share that look into it um it's it's worth worth the money to me reading recommendation um i think it was yesterday i read an article and, and, and this, this has certainly been in the news. By the time this podcast comes out, it might be a little dated, but, but if you haven't read the article by then, I highly recommend that you do so. Um, it's, a, it's an article um, in The Intercept, China's Man in Washington, and it, it's about the son of former Iowa governor 
and a former ambassador to China, Terry Branstad. And, and basically his son is a, is a political lobbyist. Um, the article does touch upon China quite a bit because of the fact that um, well, it's a, it's a hot topic, and his father was was the ambassador there. I think what's really interesting about the article is that how it it really captures this whole theme of, of lobbying and and the unholy links that exist right between um, those in power and different entities, companies that that want to influence the political the political process. So it's an interesting complement to, to much of what's been said about Hunter Biden. And interestingly, there's actually, this is a little bit of a, probably not what's going to catch most people's attention about the article, but one of the matters in which this, uh, this man, Eric Branstad, was involved, actually involves a, a Spanish company and it involves certain trade actions that with, with which our firm has, has been involved and, and how a Spanish company was able to successfully lobby to to stay out of the the list of, of companies and, and products that would be affected. So really interesting. There's there's a lot there to to unpack. So again, China's man in Washington, October fifteenth uh, is the publication date on the on the Intercept. And uh, what about you, Jonathan? I am recommending a, a language app, right? It's not it's something everyone's heard of, right? It's Google Translate. I, I recommend this because I use it basically every day, whether I am uh, working with Chinese language documents or I am working on my very rudimentary Spanish. Um, but I, I have enjoyed it. I, it's interesting because I asked my a uh, couple of our, our colleagues, Fred, who are native Chinese speakers, said, what do you use for good translation software when you're working on a contract or uh, just working through documents? And they, they both looked at me kind of blankly and uh, like I was some kind of idiot and said, we use Google Translate. And so I, I was, I thought they would, you know, there'd be some, some great uh, proprietary Chinese language uh, software that they would use. And it turns out they just like using Google and it, it is very user-friendly, quite accurate. Um, it, it has a great community of, of people who contribute to it, users who can contribute to it to help verify translations and say, yes, this is what this word means in Chinese or in Spanish. Um, and so it, it's very user friendly. Um, like we I said, hope I you enjoyed this week's episode. You haven't we look looked into it. It's just the basic on social media you know, to you continue discussing your phone in global you can use and, and translate things in real time as your host week for another episode uh, for the camera we'll to see. see. Then. So lots of functionality and uh, obviously it's free. So everybody loves that. So that's my recommendation today. Uh, Sonia, once again, we'd love to thank you for being with us today. Uh, we look forward to catching up with you again. Uh, to get some more intel on what's going on in Spain and the larger continent and uh, wish you very well. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sonia. Thank you so much. Thank you.